Amen, amen. Well, welcome to Two Cities Church. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you look around this room, whether you're in the lobby or, hey, hello, in the VHQ, or not the VHQ venue, online, we don't have the VHQ venue anymore. We gave it to the kids. Or in this room, look around. It is full. It is packed. That's why in two weeks, actually less than two weeks, two weeks from yesterday, we are launching our Saturday night service. Why are we doing it? Well, it's obvious, right? Look around the room. And one of the reasons we do this is, is when we open a seat for a person, or maybe say it this way, when you come to a service like this and it is this full, it communicates to new people. And if you're new, we are glad you're here, but it communicates to new people. We don't have any more space for you. And we don't want to communicate that because every open seat is an opportunity to disciple someone. So on Saturday, August 7th, we are launching our Saturday night service. I just want to remind you, we've not talked about it a ton, but it's going to be Saturday at 5, and we're going to keep these three services on Sunday. And we're asking many of you, could you move to Saturday for the rest of 2021? Or could you move to Saturday at least for this next series that we're going to be launching? It, we, we did not choose Saturday night, just kind of to tell you behind the scenes a little bit. We did not choose Saturday night because it was the easiest for our staff. We chose Saturday night because it was the best for you. We did. It was the best for your family. It was the best. It's a, it's a non-school night. You can bring your kids, uh, get them more connected to the kids' ministry. So please be looking for that. We are incredibly excited about the launching of that. That is how we are going to increase our seating capacity, our sending capacity, and our serving capacity as we head into the future. Let me take a moment. I want to pray for that. That's going to be a big transition for our staff. That's going to be a big transition for some of you. But would you take the next step to open up some more seats? Our college students are not back yet. We had the largest Sunday in the history of any summer we've ever had last week in July, which never happens. And so we are, we are, we are all we're trying to do is respond and react to what we see God doing. I wasn't trying to add another service, Okay. <laughs> We're excited about it. Now, listen, we're not, we're not going to be live streaming the Saturday night service, so you're going to come and get me raw and unfiltered, okay, and uncut. <laughs> so you better show up for that reason as well. Okay, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the men and women in this room. I thank you for the opportunity. I thank you for our staff and our elders and all those who are going to come around, uh, all of our volunteers who are going to uniquely serve on Saturdays and are going to open up new opportunities and new open doors for people. I pray for all of the college students. We think about, I think about 1,500 Wake Forest students who move here as freshmen. And, ha and have very little access to the gospel until somebody goes and tells them about Christ and invites them to hear the gospel, Lord. So we pray you would do something magnificent and marvelous, Lord, as we open up a new service. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can type to or turn to 2 Timothy 4 if you're new. We are in a nine-week series in a small little letter. We call it a book, but it's really, it's a letter. It's a letter of Paul, the most famous, probably the most famous Christian of all time, to his favorite person, Timothy, and it's Paul's final letter. So here's the background as you're turning to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul's in death row, on death row. He's going to die. He's in prison. And on his heart is to pass on the faith. That's what he wants to do. He wants to pass on the faith to the next generation. And so the whole book, he, he's writing to this guy named Timothy, who Timothy's about my age. Timothy's in his mid-30s. And Timothy struggles with fear Timothy struggles with anxiety, just like some of you do. Timothy struggles with peer pressure and people-pleasing. And he's got a church that I guess is fairly difficult. He's got some difficult people in his church. He's, got, he, he's in a strategic city. He's in the city of Ephesus. This is a key city that needs a gospel-centered church. By the way, if you want to pray for cities, you pray for the churches in that city. That's what you pray for. Lord, would you send more gospel-centered churches to that city? That's what makes a city healthy overall. So Timothy's very, very afraid. Paul says, listen, here's the call. I want you to make 
multiply and mobilize disciples. And, and just so you know, that's what our church is about. We are about making and mobilizing disciples. Dads, that's what we're calling you to do. What are you doing at the dining room table? You're making and mobilizing disciples who have your last name. This is what we're doing in the kids' ministry. This is what we're doing at every level and layer in our church. In fact, respectfully, okay, let me say this respectfully, if you're not making disciples, it might be that you're not a disciple. I mean, this is what disciples do. Disciples follow Jesus, okay, and they help others find and follow Jesus. And if you're not following Jesus and you're not helping others find and follow Jesus, I don't know what you mean when you say that you're a disciple. I don't know if it means I, I attend church, I listen to sermons, I sing songs, I get an hour of free childcare. I, I don't know what it means, but what it means to be a disciple is to follow Jesus and help others find and follow Jesus. And then last week we saw that Paul tells Timothy, there's one main resource, there's one main tool, there's one main thing that you use to disciple other people, and it's the word, right? It's not a Jen Wilkin book. It's not a John Piper devotional. It's not a podcast. It's not a blog. It's ultimately the word of God. And so what's interesting, this is going to be a very interesting sermon. This is a sermon on sermons, okay? I'm going to be preaching on preaching. That's what I'm going to be doing here. But here's what it is. Paul's going to, it makes total sense. This is why we read the Bible in order, right? It, it logically makes sense. Line by line, verse by verse. Last week was a high view of the word of God. This week is a high view of preaching, Churches and Christians that love the Bible love preaching. What is the number one problem in the church today? Lack of preaching. That's it. When I go on and I see that some church has a 10-minute sermon, that's an introduction. <laughs> right? What is the 10-minute sermon? It's like, we don't value this. We value rituals. We value all of these other goofy elements to our service, and preaching gets no space. Do you understand why churches are designed the way they are? The why does all the seats face this way? Why historically is there a massive pulpit? Go to Germany and you have to go, the preacher has to walk the pulpit. It takes, it's awkward, okay? It takes about 45 seconds for him to get up to the top of it. And it's all communicating something. Why is the preaching the longest thing that happens? It's because it's central. And churches that don't have strong preaching are weak, and they are full of shallow people. And I know this is so awkward for me to talk about because I'm the one preaching right now. <laughs> I get it. With all that said, let's, let's look at uh, 2 Timothy 4. I want to read this to you guys. Okay, 2 Timothy 4. I charge you, I warn you. That's what it means. I'm going to read you all eight verses here. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus because they're co-equal and they're co-eternal. So I charge you before them both, who is to judge the living and the dead. Well, this sounds like a massive motivation. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Don't just have a conversation. Don't just have a dialogue. Preach it. And then he says this. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, and that means it's here now. When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Big idea for this text, and therefore for this sermon, is what happens is the pastor preaches the word, and it fills people up. And then they go out and are poured out as they fulfill their ministries. That's how Christianity works. Sunday is incredibly important. Preaching is incredibly unique. We're going to talk about it today. It's different than anything else. You'll notice there's such a serious charge before it. He says, I charge you. And he says, first of all, so Paul's like, I want to motivate you, right? And, and how are you motivated? That's a good thing to think about. Like, what motivates you? Lots of people are motivated by greed or by guilt. <laughs> what motivates me is I want more for me, or what motivates me is I'm afraid of them. And the only reason I do stuff is for selfish reasons, greed, or for people-pleasing reasons, guilt. Well, he says, actually, there's another reason to do it, conviction. I live out of conviction. And he gives you three massive convictions I don't have a lot of time to get into because we've got to talk about preaching at length today. But the first conviction is the presence of God. The presence of God in the Hebrew is literally the face of God. That the Christian lives, well, every person does, but the Christian knows that he or she lives before the face of God. The second thing is the final judgment. Do you see that? He talks in verse one about the final judgment. Now, the final judgment, here's, here's, fear can be a good motivator. Fear needs to motivate you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does that mean? That means I'm afraid of the right things. And the number one thing you should be afraid of is standing naked, bare, and alone before the living God when Christ returns or you die. That should have a healthy motivating factor in your life. You don't die and stand before your parents. You don't die and stand before your friends. You don't die and stand before your pastor or your professor. You die and stand alone, naked, and bare before God. And then finally, he motivates you by reward, right? Because you need something. I tell you this all the time. You need something to run away from and something to run toward. I run away from being, uh, I want to run away from a terrible final judgment. I want to run toward all of the rewards Christ promises me. And then he says, in light of all this, preach the word. Now, listen, we're going to talk about preaching, but before I do, I, want, I need to talk about the general ministry of the word. So preach the word. Preaching is a unique ministry of the word. We'll talk about that. There are other ministries of the word that flow from preaching. Why preaching is so important is a church never rises above the preaching. And everything else is downwind, downhill, and downstream the preaching. The first thing to go in a church is the preaching. And what happens and what changes a church is when somebody comes in and starts preaching. It's only a matter of time before things begin to change. There are other ministries of the word. Let me tell you them. There is the ministry of counseling. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great preacher, look him up sometimes, the doctor, they called him. He was so overwhelmed with the desire to preach, he left medicine. He was a very successful, awesome doctor, and he left it because he was overwhelmed to see what preaching could do to a people. And he said the greatest need in the church is preaching. And so he said, what he, in his observation, he thought counseling increased because preaching had decreased in England. See, when there's not healthy, weekly preaching in the life of people, in, in the life of people, they all of a sudden have all these different problems that they need. They have all, they have all these different questions. And, oh, it's so hard for modern man to live. Really? Have you seen how our ancestors had to live? 
Preaching answers, this is why when they would ask Lloyd-Jones, can we get, sit with you for counseling? He says, you have to sit under my preaching for 13 weeks. He said, almost no one needed counseling after that. But counseling's different. Okay, here's how counseling works. The person comes to you and you respond to the person with a passage, and that's important. That's a ministry of the word. You know, someone comes to you, my dad's an alcoholic. And I'm really struggling with it myself. And, Mar and because he's an alcoholic, my wife is upset and she doesn't want to spend Christmas with him. And now we're fighting about it. And I, it's like, well, oh man, okay, well, let's work on all this. But we're going to have to take all of that and we're going to have to bring, bring it to the word and then we're going to bring the word back to it. That's the, that's the ministry of care and counseling. This happens at community groups all the time. There's the, there's the ministry of the word of discipling, right? It can happen one-on-one -on -one or it can happen in a group context. That's when we open up our Bibles and we open up our lives together. There's the ministry of the word of evangelism. That's when we bring the word to lost people, particularly with the hopes of repentance, faith, and conversion. But there is something unique about preaching. I, I feel this very personally. I, I, you know, with three services, maybe I won't share this in another service, but I'm sharing it in this service. Um, but, you know, this is very personal for me because I, I thought about this this week. You know, I've studied this at length. Preaching is, it, I, again, I'm not trying to be about myself, but preaching is my life's work. I spend about half of my work week either in preparing or in preaching the word. And I thought a lot about preaching. I've, I've experienced the power of being under preaching. And I thought about how, you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever told this story publicly. I don't even think many of the staff know this story. But Two Cities Church almost didn't exist. I mean, I, I had an, it's, I've, I've had a weird life like some of you have had. And I, and I had the opportunity about six or seven years ago to have the job of a lifetime. The job you pray your kids get where money is not an issue, and you have more time than you know what to do with, and you get to do it with people that you love. Through interesting circumstances of events that I don't really have time to get into. And I really wrestled with that. Because we had just had our second kid. And I was wrestling personally with, what am I going to do? Am I going to be in ministry my whole life? What am I going to do? And as I wrestled through it, it took about a year of wrestling. At the end of the day, I just thought, I wouldn't be able to preach the word. I would have all of these other things that would be great for my family and great for my life and great for my health and great for my routine and great for my finances and great for the kids going to college, but there would be one thing missing. I wouldn't be able to give my time to teaching and preaching, which I felt deeply called to. And so when I think about this, I, I think about the call to preach. Now, preaching, what is preaching? Let's talk about it, because what is it? Well, we've thought about this a lot. Christians have, pastors have. Preaching is unique. Preaching is both an exhortation from the word of God and an encounter with the God of the word. It's both of those. So <laughs> Lloyd-Jones, I'm gonna quote him a little bit because he thought about preaching more than most people have ever thought about preaching. Um, he didn't want his sermons written down. He actually resisted for years his sermons being audio taped. Back then it was just for tapes. And he thought, and I agree at one level, you, the preaching event can't be captured Sorry, can't be captured online. It can't be. George Whitfield, he was asked, he was this amazing preacher, read about him sometime. He went all over preaching. And they said to Whitfield, they said, um, can we, someone came up to him finally and said, hey, you're preaching amazing. Can we, can we have someone while you're writing, while you're preaching, can we write your sermons down? And then can we put them in a book or pamphlets and can we you know, sell them or give them away? And he said, you're willing, go ahead, you can write my sermons down. He said, but the thunder and the lightning won't fit on the page. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> but the thunder and the light, and, and that's what happens. It's like, it doesn't come through on a video. It doesn't come through on a podcast. 
It doesn't come through on YouTube. It comes through as we're all gathered together under the word. You have to understand the history of preaching. God had one son, and he was a preacher. The fundamental thing that Jesus Christ does in his earthly ministry while he's living a perfect life is preach. It begins in Mark chapter one with preaching. Then when God wants to send somebody ahead of his son, he sends a preacher. What is John the Baptist? He's a crazy preacher, right? Out in the wilderness, just preaching. When does the church start officially? Well, you could argue about that, but most people think Acts chapter two when Peter preaches a sermon. How did the world come into existence? God preached a sermon in Genesis chapter one. This is the preaching of the word. Now, I wanna look at this together. Okay, so what is preaching? Preaching is an encounter and an event. It is an, 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 an exhortation from the word of God. Now, I want us to look at what do we preach? What do we preach? So if you look at here, it's very simple, but it says in verse um, two, preach the word. So what do we preach? Well, here, here, we preach the word, why? Because everybody's preaching all the time, just so you know this. Every podcast, somebody's preaching. Every late night talk show host is preaching. Every, one, every professor that you've ever had is preaching. Pre, there's always, uh, it's a battle of ideas. Think about it, what was World War II? At the, at the deepest level, World War II was who was going to preach a better sermon? Was it going to be Hitler or was it gonna be Winston Churchill? That's it. Go read it. Who was going to preach a better sermon and people were going to believe it? And thank God, Winston Churchill won. Preaching is incredibly important. There are, so let me talk about this. So there is preaching in the world and then there is preaching in the church. There are, now, what do we preach? Well, let's start with what we don't preach. Uh, we don't preach ourselves. Paul says that. In 2 Corinthians 4 or 5, Paul says, I don't preach myself. What does it mean? It doesn't mean he didn't talk about himself. Go read the letters of Paul. Like you'll know, I know so much about the Apostle Paul. It doesn't mean you don't talk about yourself. It doesn't mean you don't reference yourself. It means that you're not preaching your ideas, your opinions, your political persuasions. And it also means you're not the hero of every story. But he says this, he says, okay, so also we don't preach, and we'll get into this, we don't preach what people wanna hear. Right, and we're gonna see that, people will have itching ears, and there's a massive temptation to just tell people what they wanna hear. Uh, we don't preach self-help, although it's very popular. We preach what Christ has done before what we have to do. So it's always, here's what Christ has done. In his life, he lived the life you could not live. In his death, he died to pay the penalty for your sins because you're not a mistaker, but you're a sinner. He rose from the dead, and now he's calling you to repent and to believe and to follow him. We don't preach ourselves, we preach what Christ has done. We also don't just preach what Christ has done, but never talk about what we need to do. I had someone come to me one time, uh, they were visiting our church, and he was trying to describe the church he'd come from. And he said, the church I came from, everybody had spiritual anxiety all the time, including the pastor. So what does that mean? He goes, everybody just all the time told everybody that they were okay. Christ died for you, you're okay. It's like, I know Christ died for me. What do I do about my marriage that's a mess? I'm still addicted. I, need some, I, know, I know Christ died for that sin. I need help repenting of that sin. So he says, okay, now when do we preach? Look what it says there. It says, preach the word in season and out of season. That means when it's popular and when it's not popular. When it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. When people like it and when they don't. And, and you can think of the different seasons. Sometimes there's the season in a pastor's life, right? And that's what he's particularly talking about to Timothy. Timothy, preach it no matter how you feel, right? And I've, 
I've been doing this for 13 years at some level. Five, you know, for the full time, I guess you could say, every Sunday to one group of people. But I've been preaching for about 13 years. Well, there's a lot of ups and downs in 13 years. There's a lot of weeks where I'm really excited and I'm really energized and I feel close to the Lord and I feel I'm doing good in my struggle against sin. And then there are other weeks where I just feel terrible. There's other weeks that are difficult. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, he said, it's one thing to live during difficult times. It's another to preach through them. And uh, if my wife and I are going to have a fight, it's always on Saturday night, right? <laughs> True story. And I've even told her a couple times in the middle of the fight, I'm like, this is demonic. And she goes, you can't pull the demonic card in the middle of a fight. <laughs> Which is true. Um, that has happened. So we need to preach. In, there are in seasons and there are out of seasons in the church. We're going to talk about this. But one of the interesting things about, about services is I preach roughly the same sermon-ish every service. And it will be completely different responses. And it, it reminds me of the dynamic that's happening between the Word of God and the preacher and the people. And it's a different dynamic because you're dealing with different idols. You're dealing with different people. And then, so there's in-seasons and there's out-of-seasons in churches. And then there's in-seasons and out-of-seasons in the culture, right? There used to be a time when preaching and preachers were respected. It used to be lawyers and doctors and ministers were the three most respected um, professions. But I, you know, Pastor Dave was on vacation one time. He had told me this story and uh, he was at some hotel or whatever. And he got asked while on vacation, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm a pastor. And the lady's response was, that's cute. <laughs> that's cute. <laughs> Not respected in culture anymore. So, um, so how do we preach? I want you to see how we preach. Let's go and, and see what he says. If you'll turn with me to, um, to verse two. He says this, preach the word, so that's what we preach. Be ready, in season and out of season, that's when we preach. So all the time, no matter what people think or how they like it. And then he gives how to preach. Okay, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and diligence. So it's, it's this tension between preaching should both be confrontational and with complete patience. Do you see that in the text? It, I mean, reprove, rebuke, exhort. That's why we preach with authority, without apology. That's why we say hard things. We believe that hard things create a soft people. Hard words create soft people. And that soft words create hard people. Have you ever met somebody who as a kid was never told no? They're not fun to be around. Don't marry that person. Don't hire that person, right? Right? They need discipline. They need to be told no. I know some of you go, oh, we don't discipline our kids. We know. We know you don't discipline your kids. <laughs> Stop bragging about that. We know you don't discipline your kids. So, we, we've, so that's because kids need discipline. Adults need to be told no. We need to, there needs to be a convictional and confronting nature. And, and again, I thank God that, that it seems like, at least in my experience in our short time as a church, is that the harder that I preach, the more that people love it. I mean, people will come up to me afterwards. I mean, I remember one time I was, I preached, this is years ago, I preached a sermon to the men about one thing, and then I preached a sermon to the women afterwards, and the women came up to me and said, it just wasn't hard enough. You, 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 you didn't convict us enough. You should have, next time you preach against women, not against women. <laughs> uh, cut that audio, I'm for women. Um, when you preach on the topic of biblical womanhood or something, call us up more, and it's just, anyway. 
And so, uh, but then also with complete patience. So it's confrontational, but with complete patience. And that's the tension. The complete patience is, is the reality that the Holy Spirit is the one who does the work of the ministry. You know, uh, he is the, the, who is the preacher at Two Cities Church? The Holy Spirit, ultimately. And so it creates a, hey, I'm going to be incredibly patient because, and this is why, uh, how do you grow in patience? You work on yourself first. And then you realize, well, it's actually a lot harder to overcome the things in my life that I've been struggling with for a long time. And I'm really glad God's patient with me. And so I'm, I'm going to be incredibly patient with people. What we, what we ask here is that are people making progress? It might be you're crawling. You're not even walking yet. But are people making progress? And are people heading, we're not looking for perfection. We're looking, are people heading in the right direction together? So because he, he gives a big warning here. I want you to see this in verse 3. For the time is coming, which would be now, when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So the Bible, when it's preached, it has different effects on different people, right? I, I, I'll, I'll see this. I'll see as I, I mean, it's a, like I said, it's a, there's a dynamic relationship as we're preaching. And I'm always watching people and I'm always looking and I'm always seeing the reactions. And there'll be some of you and you're, complete, you're in and you get it. And you're, and you're ready, and you're learning, and you're growing. And then every once in a while, I'll see somebody sleeping. <laughs> or somebody completely looking bored. And I'm like, all right, Lord. It is the same word. And here's what the Puritan said. The same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. And so preaching is, it, preaching is always going to be resisted. That's what Paul's warning. He says, when, you, when the word is preached, there's, there's two responses. I'm either going to repent, or I'm going to resist. And this is what makes preaching so hard. You know, again, I know I'm referencing myself a lot today as we're talking about this, but I think it's helpful just maybe for, for those of you who are interested in understanding preaching more. Um, and, and another reason it's important to understand preaching is, is because m- many of you will not be here your whole lives. And so you'll need to know what to look for in preaching. You know, we have a lot of college students. We have a lot of medical people. We've got a lot of people who will transition for different reasons and they'll be in some different state or they'll be in some different church. And you want to understand preaching. You want to know what to look for in preaching. Preaching is unique. You know, there was a season about, for about 18 months in this church where we, uh, we did four sermons live in one day. And it was just too much. I, and I'm, and I'm, just, I'm just being honest about it. It just isn't healthy. The preaching event is so intense. It's emotional. It's physical. It's spiritual. I had one mentor pastor said, he said, the reason that preaching is so difficult is because there are, there's not only people but principalities and powers in the room at all times. And it's interesting, like, if I talk about family and dads needing to lead or there being roles and responsibilities in the home or something like that, you can almost feel, you can feel it in the morning services. But everyone in the evening services, which is because it's more families in the morning, it's a lot of young people at night, okay. I talk about gender, sexuality, any of that stuff, easier to talk about in the morning. Feels very different talking about it at night. Every once in a while, I'll be dealing with stuff, talking about eternal punishment, talking about the exclusivity of Christ. Sometimes I feel like I'm running into a stiff headwind for about 45 minutes. And so, th- this is the, so it, it, the preaching, it will be resisted. I see this across different services. And, and it tells us why. If you look at there, it says they have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers. Now, has it ever been easier to accumulate teachers? Look at your podcast list, right? Look at your YouTube channel. Like you, you can, I remember this, I'm sitting with this guy. He wants to get baptized. 
we're having lunch. This is like a couple years ago. He's clearly doesn't understand the gospel. And he's living with his girlfriend. And, and you know, it's like, okay, so I'm sharing the gospel with him. And basically I tell him you shouldn't be living with your girlfriend. And he smiles and nods. I never see him again. It's like, and then I find out later he went to some church somewhere that lets him do that now. And it's like, you know, there, there's a, okay, so what happens is people, it says, they, look, look, the heart of it, if you, I think it's either in verse, I think it's the end of verse three. It says the heart of it is that they accumulate people for their own passions. That's the heart of it. The heart of it is that people want to live a certain way. And then they want to have, it's what, it's what psychologists call confirmation bias. They want to hear things that affirm how they already feel. They want to go places that are going to tell them what they already believe. They don't want to actually be confronted, and they don't want to be challenged, and they don't want to be convicted. Really, what we see in this verse is that without preaching, people are left only to their passions. And so what he says here is, he says, there's preaching, and then out of preaching, here's what he says, look at verse, excuse me, look at verse uh, five. He says, as for you, so he talked about preaching for a while, and he says, as for you, always be sober-minded. So this is in the midst of people are going to not like your preaching. People are not going to believe. People are going to get angry. All of this. He says, as for you, three things, four things. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I don't have time to talk about these at great length, but let's look at each one of them. He says to be sober-minded. Sober-minded means two things. One, it means to simply think clearly, right? What's the opposite of being sober? Some of you said that too quickly, okay. Um, <laughs> it's to be drunk. Now, and what is drunk, what does alcohol do? Alcohol is an interesting drug because what alcohol does is it, is it does a couple things. One, it softens the world. And what alcohol does is it makes people less anxious. This is why people drink. This is why it's the social lubricant on the college campus. And what happens with alcohol, which is very, very interesting, and it's, it's just helpful to understand being sober-minded, Alcohol doesn't make you not know the consequences of what's going to happen. It simply makes you not care. They've done studies. Well, they'll take people who are drunk, and they'll ask them, do you know what's going to Yes, I know. They'll do it anyway. It softens the world to such a place that you don't care. What Paul's saying is you've got to keep caring. You can't stop caring for lost people. You can't stop caring for people that are hurting. You can't stop caring even for the people who resisted the message because guess what? The Apostle Paul's like, I was on the top of the list of resisting the message of the gospel. He says, so it has, the idea of being sober-minded has two things. One, it's think clearly, keep caring, that kind of idea. Think clearly and keep caring. Two, it's don't freak out, right? And we've learned this. You know, what, who is the leader in the room? The leader is the non-anxious presence in every room. That's what you want. What do you you want from your doctor? The non-anxious presence. Yes. Right? What do you want from dad at the dinner table when things are crazy in the family? The non-anxious presence. What do you want from a boss at work? The non-anxious presence. That's the idea of sober-minded. He said, be sober-minded. And then here's the big one I want to focus on. Fulfill your ministry. I love this. Every person, every person, every Christian has a ministry. What is your ministry? It's the way that you fulfill the great commission and the great commandment through your life stage and your lifestyle. Right? Everybody has a life stage. I'm single. I'm single again. I'm married. I'm married with young kids in the home. I'm married with teenagers and have some more time back. I'm an empty nester. I'm a widower. I'm a widow. Everybody has a life stage. And then everybody has a lifestyle. I like to work out. I like to run. I like to bike. 
I like to watch movies. I like to play instruments. One of the things that you do when you fulfill your ministry is you say, okay, based on my life stage and based on my lifestyle, okay, and there's many other factors, how can I fulfill the great commandment and the great commission? And this is so important. Listen, nobody can fulfill your ministry for you. And when, this is so important. When you don't fulfill your ministry, you leave a hole. Right? When dads don't fulfill their ministry, they leave a massive hole in their family. Right? When moms don't fulfill their ministry, they leave a massive hole in their family. How do you fulfill your ministry? Well, first of all, you need to know what your ministry is. And I'm not going to make anyone raise their hand and know what their ministry is right now. I'm not going to call anyone. <laughs> but here's, here's how you find out your ministry. What do you desire? There's four things to help you find your ministry. Number one, your desires. What are you passionate about? And it's really interesting. People, it's like, we don't know why certain people are passionate about certain things, I, I, right? You, you just don't know. It just kind of arises out of you. You're like, this is what I'm really passionate about. Why, why, what are you excited about? What breaks your heart? That's another question. What makes you cry? What problems bother you? It's not obvious why certain problems will bother you. But there will be certain things that bother you. I know one lady in our church, she's like, I, just, I, I have a real heart for single moms. And, and there's many reasons why, but, but she has a huge heart for that. Oftentimes, your desires will come out of your greatest sin, your greatest struggle, your greatest weakness, your greatest suffering. Then you'll start to have a heart for that. Oh, I have a heart for people with disability because my brother had a disability. You know, I've got a heart for financial ministries because my finances are really messed up. And then I prayed and I asked Dave Ramsey into my heart and, you know, if we fix it. <laughs> right? And you'll have, a, you'll have a passion for that. And... So there's desire, there's ability. You have to have the ability. Ability is, is, do you have the natural and spiritual abilities? Do you know your spiritual gifts? You know, do you have, do you have any, nat what are your natural abilities? There's affirmation. Are, are there other people who are affirming you and not just your grandmother, right? Like there are people who say, and, and by the way, the only way you can find, fulfill your ministry is in the church and in community with feedback. Because then people go, you're not good at that. You are good at that. Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed you've got a huge heart for hospitality? Well, I didn't know that. I just thought I liked having people over. No, no, I see your heart for hospitality. Man, when you, when you teach, people really, really learn, and they really, really listen, and they take notes. Do you realize you haven't... I didn't know that. I was just kind of sharing from my heart what I thought the Lord was teaching me. It's like, no, you've got the gift of teaching. You've got a heart for, huge heart for prayer. Well, I didn't know that. I, well, yeah, I see it. Nobody prays as much... Nobody tells me that they're praying for me as much as you say you're praying for me. So there's desire, there's ability, there's affirmation, and then there's opportunity. Right? And what you see a lot of times, and this is sad, is you'll see people who they have the desire and they have the ability and they have the affirmation, but there is no opportunity. A lot of times we're talking to somebody who's wanting to make a transition into ministry during like their 40s or 50s. And they struggle. I got the desire, I got the ability, I got the affirmation. I don't know the on-ramp. I don't know the inroad. I don't know how that would work. One of the things I want to tell you right now is that in a church, the size and scope and speed of our church with all of the growth, numerically and spiritually and organizationally, there is so many opportunities. And we need every person who calls Sioux City's home to say, I am completely committed to fulfilling my ministry. So Paul says, I want you to fulfill your ministry. He says, I want you to do the work of an evangelist. That's part of ministry, to have a ministry in the church and a mission in the world. But then at the very, very end, Paul ends with evaluating his life. This is, I mean, we'll be back next week and we'll finish this book, but this is the last moment where Paul basically just says, I want to tell you I'm staring at my death and I'm evaluating my life. And too many of us, we're working in our lives, we're never working on our lives. 
We don't ever take the time to think about what am I doing? What is the purpose of my life? And how do I finish well? So I want you to see as we close what Paul says in verses six through eight. He says this, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. This is the language of sacrifice. Some even think it's graphic language because Paul will have his head cut off. So it's the idea of the wine being poured out. There will, I mean, not to be graphic, but this is what Paul's saying. There will be blood everywhere. I'm going to be poured out. I'm going to have my head cut off. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come, which is an interesting way to talk about death. He doesn't say death. He says departure. Departure is when you pull up. It's the same Greek word that's used for an anchor being pulled up and leaving shore. Right? It's a beautiful, the only time we tend to use the word departures is right when we are at the airport and we're heading from one location to another. That's what Paul's saying. It's a beautiful picture of death, even in the midst of the horrible nature of how he's going to die. He says, I have, he's looking back on his life, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What's amazing about Paul is he looks at the end of his life and he has no regrets, right? One of the things I want us to think about is what would your life look like at the end of your life? Will you have any regrets? And you go, well, how do I, how do I think about that? Well, let me give you an exercise that you can do this week. You can do it in your community group. You can do it anywhere. I think it's a very, very helpful exercise. Um, it's to think about your funeral, if you want to go, how can I fulfill my ministry? How can I finish? Well, you have to think about your funeral. I mean, you know this, but you're going to have a funeral, right? The, the death rate is right at 100%, okay? So, <laughs> right? You're going to have a funeral, okay? I'm not trying to be, you know, morbid here, but you, you are going to have a funeral. And, and this is, you know, this, this is the only way that I know that to actually make yourself think some thoughts you wouldn't naturally think. You're going to have a funeral. And what you need to do is you need to say, okay, who will be there speaking, and what would I like them to say about me? And if you would take an hour or two and you would do this exercise, it's like, who will be there? My son will be there. Okay, what would I like him to say about me? My spouse will be there. What would I like her or him to say about me? My father might be there. What would I want him to say about me? And that, what you'll see, if you can get yourself in the right state of mind, you, you will actually begin to see, if you go, what do I value? What do I want my life to be about? See, what's amazing is the Apostle Paul is about to be poured out and he's only in his 60s. From our best, you know, we try to put it back together, how old is he? He's somewhere between 62 and 65 years old. It's also a reminder, and I say this to you because some of you have lost people, you know, unexpectedly and quickly. It is never a good time to die. Timothy needs Paul, right? Timothy's like, dude, I've got, my church is like falling apart, and I'm scared, and I need a break from preaching, and I need some help. And Paul's like, I'm not going to be able to be there for you. You know, it's like Paul, Paul that was, it was Timothy's spiritual father. He doesn't have multiple spiritual fathers. Paul says that I'm your spiritual father. He's about to lose his spiritual father. There's something in there. This is why when, when a Christian dies, it's never sad for the Christian, but always sad for those who are left behind every time. Paul says, I'm going to be poured out. And here's what he says. He goes, I want to comfort you with this. I want you to know that I finished the race. It's interesting, in chapter three, he tells Timothy, I want you to continue. And then he encourages Timothy in chapter four and says, I want you to know that I have completed the race. 
There's one person who went even before the Apostle Paul to complete the race, and it was Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ, in John chapter 17, in his final prayer, he says to God, his Father, he says, I have completed the work that you gave me to do. That Jesus Christ fulfilled his ministry. Now, he had a very unique ministry. He had a preaching, teaching, healing ministry. But what Jesus Christ did was he lived a perfect life. He obeyed and fought temptation everywhere Israel and all of us have failed and fallen. And when Jesus said, I'm going to complete the work you've given me, he was talking particularly about the painfulness of being poured out, not by having his head cut off, but by going to the cross. And Jesus Christ goes to the cross and dies for your sins and for my sins. And he rises from the dead and he calls us now to a life of following him. A life of following him and helping others find and follow him. Now, I don't know where you are on the race. Some of you need to start this race, right? Paul says, I finished the race. Some of you have not started it. And today you can go, I'm going to start. You start by you give, you give Jesus your best and you give Jesus your worst, right? You give Jesus your sin and you give Jesus yourself. That's how you start the race. Some of you have fumbled and fallen, right? That's okay. The Bible says a righteous person falls seven times. That means like again and again and again. But he gets and she gets back up. So part of what we are as a church, you're not going to be able to finish well if you're not in community. I want you to know that as a church, what we want to do is the reason that we gather together is to be under the word together so that we can run this race together so that we can fulfill our ministry and help each other finish this race. Let's pray about those things. Lord, I I just pray right now for us, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would be a, a church of the word, a church created by the word, a church under the word. Lord, I pray that each week you would use the preaching and teaching of this church to strengthen, to fill up the men and the women and the teenagers and the children in this church. Lord, I pray that as you would fill us up, Lord, you would help us to be sober-minded, that we'd look around and we'd go, we care. We care about what's going on, and we want to fulfill our ministry. Lord, I pray for husbands and for wives to fulfill their ministry to each other and to their, and to their children. Lord, I pray and I thank you for all of these people that are taking their next step to come to our weekender. For some of them, it might be the way that they're starting the race. Lord, I pray that no matter where we've fallen or how many times we've fallen, that you would surround us and this church with other Christians who are going to help us get up and help us keep finishing this race. Lord, we know that it's not how fast we start, but it's how strong we finish. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.